Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about how a reaction against the Age of Reason created the spiritualism movement, a belief system built on Christianity that claimed the spirits of the dead could contact the living. But to put it bluntly, what about the really weird stuff? What about drawing the circle, or commanding demons, or astrally projecting your consciousness? Today we're going to be talking about just that. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And we've been talking about what we call Victorian occultism for the topic, but we haven't actually gotten to that mu- gotten into that much occult stuff so far. Mainly, we 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 focused on spiritualism for the first uh, mm-hmm. section of the show. And one of the things I found really interesting about spiritualism is that at its core, it's actually a fairly mainstream thing. I'm, I'm I, there. There were a lot of people who didn't agree with me necessarily, but. In, in essence, it's 98% Christianity with like a little bit of extra uh, spice thrown in for good measure, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a slightly altered version of Christianity that they're mm-hmm. using. But, but yeah, all in all, it's, it's very, very firmly rooted in that, that traditional um, sort of mainstream spirituality that was in place in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. There's really another way to kind of look at spirituality in, in Western civilization for even the last 2,000 years, though, as really having a sort of a, a third way to look at it. There, there, there is this whole sort of uh, atheistic uh, influence of the Enlightenment and of uh, the French Revolution and all of that. There is the sort of what some groups would consider almost oppressive mainstreamness of Christianity. And then this whole category uh, known as esotericism, mm-hmm. which in, in this context, particular context is often seen as sort of a third way in between those two extremes we don't necessarily want this established institutionalized spirituality but we're also not saying that hey there is you know there's nothing out there sort of thing so is this kind of where you get into more metaphysical or new age ideas or like precursors to that rather? yeah absolutely and that's that's kind of what i want to focus on for the rest of the the topic actually is, is cool. sort of that precursor to the new age movement we won't get into that too much just because it gets so um it branches off quite a lot. Yeah, it, it kind of disperses because a, a, a major theme of esotericism is the ability to, at least in some cases, sort of practice on your own or sort of decide for yourself what practicing means. You know, things like Kind of like DIY spiritualism. Kind sure, of. like you get into the eclectic uh, versions of paganism and things like that where, where you really could 
um, sort of do like a, a, a self-directed version of uh, your own spiritual education and, and sort mm-hmm. of really look to what resonates with you and things like that rather than necessarily going and finding a teacher and doing these like initiations into secret groups or things like that. But right. it absolutely does start off in that sort of clandestine uh, type of, of organization. And as we move through this whole part, we'll kind of see it moving first off into like more and more like ritualized hierarchies. And then in the 20th century, sort of turn around and turn into, you know, finally kind of disperse away from that very, uh, you know, iron grip version of of esotericism. So esoteric is kind of one of those terms that could mean just about anything. It's a very catch-all term. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we're going to be focusing mainly on um, occultism. But we should maybe talk about what sorts of things we're talking about here um, because it is such a catch-all there was a uh, there was a scholar of uh, western esotericism named uh, Antoine Favre born in 1934 who basically used the following criteria when talking about occultism there were there were five things he, he identified uh, correspondence which is that there needs to be this sort of what's sometimes known as like uh, magical thinking the idea that something on a micro scale can affect things on a macro scale and vice okay. versa in, in a very like direct kind of way right. and that's something that you would have seen a lot in alchemy when we were talking about that last month the whole uh, hermetic tr- uh, tradition of as above so below mm, yeah. um, you get a tradition of sort of a living nature this idea that there's a connection between all living things and that there's something sort of uh, gestalt about biological life and right. you know the the fact that one thing is alive is great the fact that everything on earth is alive is uh more than just all those individual things and that there's something connecting all of those living things mm-hmm. something he called imagination which is the idea that human thought in and of itself has power and has the ability to um affect change and to bridge the physical and spiritual worlds okay something he called concordance which is this idea that there's an underlying unifying principle of spirituality and existence you'll you'll hear this uh sometimes presented as a metaphor of a river that there's you know many streams kind of leading with into the river but eventually Mm -hmm. you know it's it's all going into the same uh, yeah into the same stream right many branches on the same tree many paths up the mountain yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of similar (laughs) sayings when it comes to spirituality but it is this sort of more inclusive take on spiritual understanding generally more established religions will establish or, or will claim some sort of uh, primacy of knowledge, right? Some sort of um, superiority, if not exclusivity, and and paint basically anything else as either false or even you know potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. A lot of these esoteric movements and occult movements basically see all of this stuff as kind of you know it's it's all working in the same sort of direction, and and there's not necessarily a, a wrong way to go about it. Mm-hmm. And finally, there's something that uh, Fevre called uh, transmission, which is what we were just kind of talking about with this transmission of knowledge from uh, a master to disciples, this relationship, this direct personal relationship between um, people with uh, privileged knowledge and and people that uh, were looking to gain this knowledge from them. And usually that needs to be, that relationship needs to be established through some sort of like, you know, uh, a secret initiation. And that kind of goes back to 
well, back to the Greek mystery religions, right? With the the, the Gnostic ideas of, of hidden knowledge, of secret knowledge that mm-hmm. uh, only a select few are, are privy to. And, and that's a tradition that continued all the way through uh, everything that we talked about with alchemy. And it uh, manifests in, well, depending on who you talk to, uh, non-spiritual uh uh, organizations like the Freemasons, where like yeah, there's some there's some symbolism there for sure, but maybe yeah. it's just a place to go hang out. Uh, <laughs> but but you still get those initiation rites and the secrecy and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be a major component of the occult uh, topics that we're talking about today. So already you can see a pretty big difference from where we started with spiritualism. Yeah, because spiritualism was this big bombastic, uh, showy thing where there's there's uh, people going around and and um, putting on displays usually for you know paid tickets of cold readings and and uh spirit tapping and 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 all of these things that people were debunking as 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 the belief set kind of moved along Mm -hmm. and you know you've got we we touched on it a little bit but you had you had these spiritualists coming through and and uh hypnotizing people and and having them believe themselves that they had been uh visited by some sort of spiritual presence you've got people in the audience believing that in that moment they had been possessed by a spirit like there's there's all sorts of things that go along with it and it's very big and it's very showy Mm -hmm. but there's also this fairly large population of people who are looking at that and going like this doesn't this doesn't feel right this doesn't feel any different than other established religions basically mm-hmm. there's this sort of instinct that there's got to be something more out there right like there's got to be something hidden there's got to be something um more pure more mm-hmm. uh you know kind of something to tap into and that interest in secret knowledge has been there all along it's not as though it came out of nowhere in yeah. uh, in the mid-19th century but you know I, I keep re- i keep referring back to alchemy on this one it's just it works too well as a as a two-parter with the establishment of kind of the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, and sort of the undeniable uh, proof of alchemy as being incorrect, mm-hmm. a lot of the hermetic traditions that go into alchemy kind of die off in that there's really no, or I shouldn't say no, there's there's far, far less uh, interest in them because you don't have that physical aspect of it. You don't have that physical transformation part of it. And the uh, philosophical or spiritual portions of the of, of the discipline are, are just less widespread. But there's always people who are interested in the in the uh, uh, in the concepts that are being espoused. Mm-hmm. Just like spiritualism, the mid nineteenth century results in this kind of reaction against the age of reason that we talked about. This idea that like, well, it, you know, it, it can't be that sanitary. There's got to be something out there, something more out there, mm-hmm. and. So interest in the Hermetic traditions kind of peaks at around the same time as uh, as spiritualism starts up, um, down to or or nearly down to the year. We had this, the Fox Sisters starting in 1848. One of the earliest practitioners of the occult in Europe was, um, or at least this wave of the occult, was a, a Frenchman named uh, uh, Eliphas Levy, who was actually originally going to be a uh, Catholic priest. He went through mm. seminary, but didn't finish uh, because he fell in love with a woman oh, okay. and left to get married. And then that didn't work out. Oh. So there's this really interesting sort of anti-establishment thing going on with Livy. Mm-hmm. And he started, you know, reading some of these old hermetic texts and he started writing his own kind of interpretations of what exactly these hermetic traditions might mean in a practical setting. But He's also not immune to the time that he lives in. And just like the spiritualists in in New York State were latching these ideas onto sort of um, 
this uh, this very personal and uh, ecstatic uh, Christianity. He's looking around at the world around him, and 1848 in Europe is uh, a year of revolution. It's it's uh, a crazy time to be alive in terms of social change, political change, things like that. Mm-hmm. And he, Levy really starts rolling in like very socialist, very anti-establishment kind of ideas into his writings. And you know, without getting too deep into each of the people that we're we're talking about, Levy did some things like. Um, talking about the practice of magic as sort of a, uh, a very deliberate um, incarnation of will mm-hmm. onto the physical world. This idea that um, even the act of wanting something or, or, or attempting to invoke something is enough to have a, a real and tangible reaction in, in the real world. So is he then coming up with his own definition of magic based on his religious education and the time period like society at the time or um is this like a pre-existing definition of magic that he's he's adapting yeah he's sort of a little of a little of b he's Mm -hmm. sort of working on uh, with these old hermetic traditions of uh, this is correspondence right like this is the idea that well and and imagination it's those two things Mm -hmm. working together combined yeah it's it's this idea that in in alchemy this you know, the, as above, so below, mm-hmm. you can affect change on one thing by uh, by willing it or by uh, causing physical changes to affect the the spiritual or the, the heavenly. He's saying basically that the mind is able to affect the physical in the same way that the spiritual world in hermetic traditions mm-hmm. could affect the physical world. Okay. But he's taking that control away from these sort of ill-defined spirits that sort of existed in, in uh, alchemy or even taking it back from angels uh, right like putting the power back into man's yeah position yeah exactly because original hermeticism like greek hermeticism Mm -hmm. way back in the day wasn't really talking about spirits in terms of of angels obviously it was it was much more personal Mm -hmm. um and it's still talking about working through other agents but over over thousands of years uh alchemy first was uh, went through a change to uh become much friendlier to islam and then much friendlier to christianity Mm -hmm. and this whole socialist movement was about taking power away from these established right. uh, uh, organizations and putting it back into the hands of the people. Likewise, he's taking hermeticism mm-hmm. back from the establishment of the church and and this sort of church-sanctioned uh, idea of uh, theosophy, basically, um, knowledge of the gods, mm-hmm. um, and putting it back into the hands of the people, saying, like, you don't need to ascribe all of this power to angels. People can do that. Mm-hmm. Levy goes through and does a couple of other notable things. Mainly, it's it's the books that he wrote that are that are useful to us going forward. He didn't claim to be a part of some ancient organization. He didn't claim, or he wasn't he wasn't trying to sell anything really. Like he just sort of wrote all this stuff from a very pure, like a personal philosophy kind of yeah. And and I think that made him very very accessible and very um, attractive to a lot of later practitioners mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like you know, with a lot of the spiritualists, it seems like they're trying to sell Like they something. have an agenda, yeah. it seems like, yeah. Levy didn't didn't have that same tint to him. He had a couple other notable um, uh, additions to sort of the, the occult body of knowledge. Uh, he's the first one to suggest the idea of the pentagram in terms of the, the point being up for good and the point being down representing mm. evil. Uh, he also did a lot of the legwork, like the majority of the legwork to... Uh, defining our current understanding of reading tarot cards. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I mean, tarot has been around for 
hundreds of years before, but the idea of using them in, um, I, I mean, they, they had been used for, uh, or as oracle cards for a long time, but the, the modern uh, standard interpretation of, of tarot comes mainly from Levi. There's uh, one other guy that I thought I'd mention quickly. His, his name was uh, Gérard Ancos, uh, also known as Papus. That's uh, a magical name he chose for himself. Uh, and he was heavily influenced by uh, Levi. And what he ended up doing is taking Levi's ideas, kind of infusing them back into spiritualism. So there's this interplay between spiritualism mm, and occultism yeah. all throughout this, right? Um, and he, he was French, but he ended up actually working for uh, Tsar Nicholas II. Okay. Uh, the last Tsar of, of Russia. And using sort of a lot of Levi's ideas and a lot of Levi's sort of uh, rituals that he, he described in his books but in a more spiritualist setting where it's a little bit more accessible for the the uh the royal family and he actually ended up being like the the royal family's like live in occultist basically <laughs> that's um, cool and he's interesting because uh you know you, you can you can look back in history and find all sorts of correct predictions but this one was a was a fairly accurate one which is always interesting i mean i, I understand that's a survivorship bias sort of thing but he did predict fairly early on in 1905 that uh, Tsar Nicholas II would die at the hands of revolutionaries. Hmm. Um, so this is 12 years before his actual death. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, this is in the middle of a, a, an earlier revolution, so maybe it's not that impressive. But Did he predict that using tarot cards? Or... No, he actually was channeling the spirit, or purportedly channeling the spirit of mm-hmm. Nicholas's father, Alexander III, at the time. And this was a message from Alexander's father hmm. to him. But once the trance was over... He also told Nicholas II that he would be able to avert this prediction as long as he was still alive, which is very handy for him. <laughs> Gives Nicholas a lot of incentive to keep to Papus keep him alive. around. Yeah, <laughs> um, Papus was also like a very like anti-Rasputin uh, sort mm. of guy. He he had a lot of negative things to say about the man for probably good reasons. <laughs> and interestingly enough, uh, he died less than five months before. Nicholas II was uh, executed at the hands of revolutionaries. Hmm. So uh, 141 days. Uh, that's all he. Uh, that's all Nicholas survived after Papus died. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, survivorship bias, but still kind of interesting. That is really cool. So as we move through the 19th century, you're kind of getting more and more of a shape to some of this spiritualism, or, or sorry, some of this uh, occultism. But it's it's established slowly, and it's established first in spiritualism, and then kind of moves away and becomes its own thing because there's a lot of ideas that are put forward that are considered kind of radical to mainstream society, but for people who are really delving into sort of non-traditional spiritual beliefs almost seem, I don't want to say self-evident. Ideas are never really self-evident, but they seem like natural progressions of uh, some of the suggestions previous uh, practitioners have have made. Mm -hmm. One really good example is uh, an American named Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was a major early proponent in the 19th century of using both the power of of sexual energy Mm -hmm. and psychoactive drugs for both spiritual fulfillment and and sort of magical power, uh, incorporating, you you know, uh, psychoactive uh, substances into uh, rituals to sort of expand consciousness and, and things like that. And... You know, again, it's not as though he's the first person to have ever thought of this. There's a long tradition of, of shamanism that that uh, incorporates various psychoactive drugs. Right. And 
you know, the idea of sexual magic is also not new in any way, shape or form, but it's certainly not something that the general public is going to look at and go like, oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Sex and drugs. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I heard heard my minister talking about that last (laughs) week. That's, that's, it's so, it's so far outside the realm of like what's proper in society Mm -hmm. that, that it's really just off the table for most people. And, and people like Randolph would have been completely shunned by even, even some practitioners of spiritualism or early occultism, because every time someone comes along with something that radical, it Mm -hmm. forms a bit of a rift in the, in the community. For sure. Yeah. And usually at that point, what you get is the, is the first cracks that will eventually form various branches of, of, yeah. Like uh, new schools of thought that develop and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you're also starting to see elements forming that will either be very much incorporated by the community moving forward, or Sometimes it's things that are completely rejected by the occult community, but end up being sort of ascribed to that community in sort of pejorative way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are traditions, uh, there there are esoteric traditions that absolutely do incorporate both sex and drugs into uh, into ritual um, to this day, and and it's it's still kind of something that gets leveled against a, a lot of people who are, are practicing non-traditional spirituality but mm-hmm. like the level to which it's used or the uh, intent like to which the it's circumstances used, that it's used under and the intent behind it or the symbolism behind it well, yeah would e- vary even even a lot of times things like this are, are used symbolically rather than literally and, yeah. and that's uh it's a distinction that often falls on deaf ears when you're you're speaking to people outside of that community so yeah it, it, we, we're gonna get into some touchy stuff on this one but yeah, the, the the community keeps pushing for this this middle way, this third way. And it's all around things that are being brought up through spiritualism. Things like, can you contact spirits? Does telekinesis exist? Does, mm-hmm. you know, is it possible for someone to be psychic, to contact uh, other minds with their own mind or the minds of spirits with their own mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, what spirits are out there? Is it only dead people? Is it only angels? Or is there something else out there? Mm-hmm. Um have people been told the truth about the nature of demonic spirits? Um, there's there's all these questions that start kind of opening up as yeah. people start exploring all of these topics. And, you know, as I've said a few, a few times, absolutely distasteful for a lot of uh, a lot of people in society, for the vast, vast majority of society. But there's this interest that is mm-hmm. always kind of there and it's kind of picking away. And, and there's this group of people or there's always this group of people who are willing to ask these kind of questions and try and uh, push their own spiritual understanding further. And there's always people there that are ready to give them answers. Yeah, for sure. Interestingly enough, in the mid-19th century, you also get a revival of Druidism in Britain. Oh, cool. Okay. Which is probably like the most nationalist and romantic thing that comes out of the romantic (laughs) era because they don't know a thing about the actual druids the actual like iron age Mm -hmm. uh spiritual cast of the celtic people because there was really nothing to go on yeah so um it's basically the modern construction of a a sort of naturalist idea of spiritualism Mm -hmm. they kind of looked to a couple of other traditions not terribly carefully to see, you know, what, what what does that relationship with nature look like on a spiritual level? And then they basically made the rest up. Right. Um, since then, organized Druidism has has come a fairly long way as, as we've learned a little bit more about what that meant culturally. Mm-hmm. And as the community itself has developed its own ideas and sort of grown. And uh, Druidism has really become its, its own thing. But what you see in Druidism is two fairly 
strong mid-19th century ideas. One being this idea that the connection with nature is an extremely important part of your spirituality, mm-hmm. um, which we talked about in, in sort of the general romantic trend um, across society. But also this sort of appeal to a time before um, sort of a generic European culture mm-hmm. uh, across the, the entire continent. There's going to be a lot of groups that start sort of looking backwards that way. Mm-hmm. And for people in Britain, where that ends up is the Celtic people. There was this idea that because Ireland had never been conquered by the Romans, maybe if we speak to you know folklorists there or, or, or uh, traditional practitioners there, maybe we can learn you know exactly what the Druids were up to. No, 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 no. It's been a very, very long time since there was anything like that. At this point in time, Britain has spent 500 years mm-hmm. doing terrible things to Ireland. Like it's it's you know, 500, maybe a thousand, and and a lot of that culture is gone. But there's this there's, there's this romantic notion that somehow we can get back to that time and maybe somehow be better for it. And yeah, it's 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 nationalist in nature, but it's also kind of an impossible dream. Uh, but they don't care mm-hmm. because it feels good. It feels right. And as I've said, that that movement has become extremely strong and and uh, extremely vibrant since then. And you know, every year you hear some story about uh, druids getting denied a, a permit to be at Stonehenge during one of the yeah. solstices, and you know, yeah. around and around we go. But it, it's it's all to say that it was a new thing at that point in time. It's fairly well established at this point. It's more than 150 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the fact that they're not a, a, a an unbroken tradition from 2500 years ago is is not to say that there's anything illegitimate about the movement and and i guess i don't have to say that about every movement we're going to talk about today but it it bears saying at least once Mm -hmm. um just like spiritualism uh coming up in 18 in the mid 1800s just like you know mormonism coming up in the same period just because it's new doesn't mean that these people aren't aren't uh extremely uh devoted to their their beliefs yeah for sure let's talk about helena blavatsky she was a Russian aristocrat born in 1831 from a very, very wealthy family. As a child, she actually survived uh, a cholera epidemic along with her mother. And if you think back to some of our uh, spiritualist leaders, you'll remember that surviving a childhood illness is a, actually a fairly common theme for some of these right. community leaders that we're going to talk about. Interesting. It's this idea that somehow they're special. That yeah, they were, because uh, it was so rare to survive. Y- yes, yes and no. Um I mean, lots of people survived. It's not as though everyone who got cholera died. It's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people died, but it's a, it's a percentage still. It's not yeah. everyone. N- no, it gives people a, a bit of a, I, I mean, number one, yes, it's, it, it was less common to survive it. But number two, it also gave people this sort of mystique touched by death and survived kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of leaders kind of capitalize on that. Her father was actually made uh, an administrator in a city on uh, the Uzbekistan border. Uh, it was called Ostrakhan. And while she was a child, she was actually exposed to Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, cool. Um, which was fairly prevalent in Uzbekistan and, and some of the towns along the, the border. There's mm-hmm. kind of that cultural bleed through, right? Yeah. And she became very interested in it because she was so so exposed to it. And, you know, this is a child who was baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Basically, right after birth. Many of her... Uh, uh, aristocratic friends would never have been exposed to such a thing. She also learned a lot of different languages from various tutors, English, French, all sorts of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to uh, Russian. And she would later claim that her uh, great-grandmother's library 
uh, contained a lot of books on esoteric matters. Whether or not that's true, we're, we're not entirely sure. In fact, there's a lot about uh, Helena's life that we're not entirely sure about. There's about a 25-year mm-hmm. period in there where she didn't really write about herself and she was traveling so much that no one else was writing about her and what little she did write was actually lost in a fire. Oh, okay. So between about ages 20 and 45, all we have to really go on are accounts that she herself wrote about her younger self. Okay. After she had already gotten very uh, deep into uh, occultism. Okay. So the reliability there is less good than it has been in, in other cases that we've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can you can kind of make things work out a lot more conveniently when you're writing them with uh, the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. However, she claimed that by the age of 14, she was having these visions of an Indian man in her dreams who was telling her that someday that they would meet. Um, she also claimed that she was beginning to uh, sort of take the first steps in learning how to uh, astrally project at this point. Okay. So... You know, this is the sort of uh, hand-in-hand that we're talking about here with, uh, yeah. with these uh, older accounts. She actually had a failed marriage at 17. And when the marriage fell apart, she went back to her family and basically immediately started traveling the world. She decided she wanted to know everything about everywhere. Mm-hmm. And is one of the most prolific travelers of the 19th century. She wow. was very wealthy, very curious. She knew a lot of languages mm-hmm. and was very comfortable in a lot of different uh, cultures. Russia that sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of admirable. Yeah. Russia Russia it's important to remember spans from like butting up on well at this point in time butting up on Germany on one side yeah. and direct contact with China on the other side. Yeah. Like it it has this sort of in-between status already compared to other uh you know nations that we think of as European. Mm-hmm. Roll into that her exposure to Tibetan culture and she's got a pretty good base started even before she turns 20. Yeah. She claims that she travels to Greece, to Egypt, to Hungary. And along the way, she's learning all of these different uh, esoteric topics, basically. So she's saying that she learned uh, ancient Coptic magic in Egypt. She's saying that mm. she learned mesmerism when she was in Paris from uh, you know people who learned it from Franz Mesmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's saying that she, she ended up in uh, India eventually and met the man from her dreams. Uh, his turned out his name was Master Moria. Mm-hmm. Um and Moria taught her about Hinduism. Mm-hmm. She went to Canada in 1851. She was hoping to uh, learn about sort of native magical religious practices. Yeah. There, there was a very romanticized version of, of uh, sort of what native peoples were like in, in Europe, especially at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And instead of actually finding anyone to teach her, she ended up uh, being robbed. Um, oh, no. But... And, you know, would later ascribe this to sort of corruption brought on by Christian missionaries. So as she's learning all these different traditions, she's becoming a lot less uh, Christian and a lot more interested in all of these different religious traditions. Yeah, She's seeing connections between all of them. She's seeing or or at least similarities between all of them. And, you know, anyone who's ever taken like a comparative religious studies course will Mm -hmm. tell you that there's a lot of similarities in, in world religions. For sure. Yeah. But... A lot of people don't have the op- uh, the opportunity to travel that, that Helena did. And so she got to experience all of this firsthand. She eventually gets to Tibet, which at this point in time was uh, close to uh, foreigners. Keep in mind, this is an era where we're talking about a country that is sandwiched between India, which is having its problems with the British, 
and China, which is also having its problems with the British. Uh, we talked about a lot of those problems in the tea episode, actually. Yeah. This is this is smack dab in that era. But she finally manages to make it into Tibet to actually learn about Buddhism from Tibetan masters. She gets there via the United States and Japan, Mexico, just learning all of these sort of folk culture, uh, folk uh, traditions mm-hmm. along the way and, and trying to absorb as much of it as possible. And she's writing prolifically this entire time. By 1858, she's finally made it back to Russia after doing this whole, you know, global tour, learning about all of these different traditions. Mm -hmm. And when she gets back, she's learned all of these new, supposedly supernatural skills. Basically, she's cracking and tapping like the Fox sisters were about 10 years after the Fox sisters had started. And I mean, there's a good chance that she learned this from spiritualists in the United States. She had exposure to them, but... This is soon enough after it's started by the Fox sisters that people around her are amazed by it. Yeah. Um, she actually took a spill from a horse, 1864, and was in a coma for months. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty touch and go for a while there. But when she woke up, she claimed that she had had visions throughout this entire time that she was in a coma. Mm-hmm. And that she now had a fuller understanding of her own consciousness that she had been like traveling inside herself the way that she'd been traveling the world externally and that she now had a more better control over her own sort of psychic abilities she ended up studying kabbalah with a rabbi in eastern europe she ended up going back to tibet like all over the place starts claiming that she's got clairvoyance that she's got telepathy that she's got the ability to dematerialize and rematerialize items that uh she's got uh the ability to control other people's consciousness all all of these things that are kind of almost extraordinary well yeah absolutely extraordinary (laughs) but also sort of almost um uh stereotypical of of uh certain new age movements Mm -hmm. where but she was kind of like the original right she eventually goes back to the u.s to study spiritualism more but it's interesting after after looking at all of these different traditions she gets to the united states and she's going in convinced that everything that's happening is real but that spiritualists have it wrong Mm -hmm. that it's not the spirits of dead people that it's actually some sort of outside force that they're making contact with spirits Mm -hmm. or what she called mischievous elementals things like that Mm -hmm. but she gets there and she starts working with this uh reporter who's showing her around a, a man named henry Steele olcott who he became convinced of of Helena's powers, but Helena got really disenchanted with the spiritualists. Mm-hmm. She met with a number of them and went, this is a sham, like this is a trick, like you're, you're trying to trick me. These aren't real abilities. Mm-hmm. And she kind of pushed it aside. She believed they were frauds. Olcott along the way, <laughs> he was a reporter. He became so convinced that Blavatsky was... Uh, the real deal that he started following her more as a disciple than as a reporter. She recruits another follower, uh, William Kwan Judge, and the three of them together found what they call the Theosophical Society in 1875. Hmm. And Theosophical, it's it's, it's named after Theosophy, the same uh, uh, tradition that we've talked about with, uh, uh, with alchemy. But she's talking about it in a much more umbrella way. She writes this book called Isis Unveiled, outlining her entire worldview of this, you know, again, this ancient universal wisdom that Mm -hmm. uh, is also going to be the uh, religion of the future once everyone figures out that it's all the same. Right. All of this stuff that's very much colored by her uh, life experience of comparing all of these religions. Mm -hmm. And she sat down and she wrote this book out 
by hand and, and, and Olcott was there and he would swear to his dying breath that she just wrote it. And as soon as it was published, people were going through and went like, this is a direct quote from this other book. And this mm-hmm. is a direct quote. And it was discovered that she had quoted from dozens of other books. Mm, yeah. Now she's saying like, she doesn't have access. Olcott is saying she didn't have access to the books. There's a theory out there that she may have just had uh, an eidetic memory mm-hmm. and was remembering passages and just writing them out. But for well, didn't she believers, also say that she had access to like a library of esoteric books when she was a child? When she was a child, yeah, yeah. This is the, she's she's uh, over forty at this point. Okay, so it's been a long time. That wasn't that I, I didn't get the impression that was brought up in like in her defense. Right. Um, she was claiming that this is all written not entirely by herself, like but, channeled kind of. Yeah, herself and this spirit that lived within her. Okay, uh, beside her, basically in her own body. But yeah, I, I mean the. It's it's pretty it's pretty obvious that the 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 passages were were cribbed from somewhere else. So. Yeah, but yeah, it was this it was this just massive undertaking of combining hermetic knowledge with uh, Neoplatonism. So like the the Platonic ideas of um, sort of everything stemming from like the one, like a a, a oneness, a unity of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, it had uh, Western esoteric traditions in there, so spiritualism was rolled in, but. It was supremely egalitarian. It was very comparative or, or inclusive. And it was focused on trying to harness and unlock the latent powers of humankind. So she was trying to basically expand people's minds by showing them how there was this undercurrent of spirituality that runs throughout the world and that every other bit of spirituality is just sort of a, a, a facet of. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to show them the whole gem. The symbol that she draws draws up for the Theosophical Society is just crazy. It's got Ouroboros, it's got a swastika, it's got the Om, Star of David. Uh, <laughs> the slogan under it is, there is no religion higher than truth. Like, she goes just all out with this yeah. thing. And she starts going back to India uh, in the, the late 1870s and trying to bring more and more Hinduism into theosophy or mm-hmm. into the Theosophic uh, Society. But this really interesting thing happens, which is that she starts converting a lot of Indian people to the Theosophic Society. And she starts basically teaching Indian people in in a certain way, a different version of Hinduism. Hmm. And it's a very like romanticized, very almost fetishized version of of Hinduism. There's very much an attempt there to draw out all of the uh, occult in Hinduism and represent it to the Indian people as being almost more mystical and and more um practical i guess okay uh, than the sort of traditional hinduism that they would have been practicing but it gets pretty popular like actually like thousands of people are following this version of hinduism hmm. and the british hate it because <laughs> anything that is kind of uniting the Indi- indian people at this point in time yeah is kind it's of not a threat doing to them their, any favors yeah it's kind of a threat to their power yeah um she's bringing back this version of hinduism to the West and pre- uh, presenting Hinduism as sort of, again, this this very idealized version of Hinduism, this mm-hmm. very almost sanitized version of it, where anything that fits in with her vision is kept and anything that doesn't fit is either altered or thrown out altogether. Um, this is about the time that uh, yoga is, in, is uh, introduced to the Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this fascination with uh, Indian religions is, is just at an all-time high. And at this point, she becomes like actively and uh, explicitly anti-Christian uh, in her beliefs. She basically takes the last little bit of that and mm-hmm. rejects it completely. 
uh, and says, you know, there's there's really nothing of, of any value there. Uh, we're going to focus in other places for our truth. She's unfortunately uh, basically forced to uh, withdraw from her own society in 1885 when a um, report on her specifically is published by one of those uh, sort of anti-spiritualist groups that we talked about last time, the, mm-hmm. the ones that would go around and, you know, perform experiments on people. Um, they actually ended up withdrawing their... Uh, findings on the basis that the the researcher was uh, explicitly out to prove her wrong rather than simply out to observe, which mm-hmm. is you know, to provide I, an objective yeah. truth. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's exa- it's against their entire mission statement. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't withdrawn until 1986. It was 101 years later. Whoa. <laughs> so not really doing any practical no. good there. But she decided that in light of that report that she would withdraw from the Theosophical Society and allow it to continue without her direct uh, intervention. Right. Because she thought it was more important for the society to continue without her than it was to save her own reputation. Okay. She died about six years later. She spent the in, uh, the ensuing six years, you know, writing books and teaching to specific individuals without going too broad with it and things like that. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, um, Blavatsky represents the entire story of the journey from the odd esoteric writer here and there sort of struggling with questions in the darkest corners of of mainstream society to an established occult movement Mm -hmm. she's certainly not the only one there were plenty of people who helped her along the way and there are plenty of parallel movements but looking at blavatsky and looking at the work that she accomplished over the course of her life that's basically how the occult came to as much prominence as it did over the second half of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. She um, sounds like a really fascinating person. Yeah. That lived a really like interesting and full life. Absolutely. Apparently she was, apparently she was a bit of a pain. Apparently <laughs> she was incredibly headstrong, really stubborn, really yeah. confrontational. But a lot of that came from a place of having a very strong sense of self. Yeah. And you and know, she's kind of starting out in a place where her her opinions or her beliefs aren't really mainstream or accepted. Yeah. And, you know, there would be a lot of backlash, I would assume, and yes. potentially very dangerous consequences to her. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's kind of understandable. She's doing everything wrong. Yeah, which exactly. Which is kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, being being a... Well, I mean, her, her life should have been marrying another aristocrat and yeah. having children and living a quiet life of leisure mm-hmm. um, and that's about it and instead she decided to I, I mean it's not as though she didn't marry she did end up marrying but I, I didn't even mention it because it's not what her life was about her life was yeah. about the spiritual work yeah you know she she went off on her own and she traveled the world alone uh, so her husband didn't join her no 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 she yeah she she traveled I mean she had servants with her she had plenty of money to support her yeah there are alternate interpretations of her life one of the main ones being that she was uh, actually a spy for the russian government and that a lot of these travels are like a cover for espionage work right and maybe that's true but this is one of those stories where it almost doesn't matter yeah because the theosophical society is still like it's 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 a thing that existed and was important to thousands upon thousands of people and has been revived at various points and has spawned a fairly large community of people who follow 
the beliefs that she put forward. And what's more, she inspired people who weren't necessarily direct followers of her, but would come afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, she would inspire them to look for truth in other places, which I, I mean... Um, like that in and of itself is so valuable. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, why shouldn't we be looking outside of Europe for literally anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to, to gain an appreciation for the... Um, the cultures of other places it, it's it's an absolute necessity for that to include to some extent their religious beliefs mm-hmm. and for that to be simply dismissed out of hand for not being christian is such an irresponsible way of going about it mm-hmm. and people like her are the reason that you know the modern understandings of things like anthropology can come up like even yeah. even uh, comparative cultural studies even things that actually aren't by their own nature spiritual mm-hmm. rely on people like blavatsky to break through and show that there is a, a, a tremendous amount of value in understanding people from other parts of the world. And exactly, yeah. I, I, I think she's a, a tremendously uh, respectable person for all of that. So, also, she's someone that everyone should know something about. Like, I mean, she accomplished so much in her life yeah. and, 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 and lived such a, an interesting and full life that I'm, I'm amazed that she doesn't have a little bit wider recognition than she no, does. No, I'd never heard of her before. Yeah, she should be... Uh, she should be in any book that ever talks about esoteric traditions mm-hmm. in the West. She's an absolutely essential piece of all of that. Now that we've talked about uh, Blavatsky, we've got a couple more really uh, notable people to talk about. But why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, I'm uh, guessing our next subject is someone that everyone's been kind of looking forward to ever since they're, uh, they read the title to this episode. So we'll be right back. All right. We're back on HI101 here with Himiko Hachinurther. Hello. And we've been talking about um, a lot of different esoteric traditions. Yeah. And I think there's one person that we really can't talk about Victorian occultism without mentioning. I'm referring to uh, Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those people whose name is sort of larger than life at this point. And I think it sort of evokes bit of emotion or even reaction without necessarily knowing a terrible amount about the person or what they did or who they were or any of that stuff. Yeah. Which usually means that there's a pretty interesting story behind them. So (laughs) uh, I took more notes on this one person than I do on like a lot of topics. So we're going to try and keep it as short (laughs) as we can, but I have a, I have a strong feeling we're not going to succeed on that point. (laughs) Aleister Crowley a lot like Helena Blavatsky, actually, was uh, born to an incredibly wealthy family. Uh, British this time, though, not uh, not Russian. Um, actually born Edward Alexander Crowley. Hmm. Uh, he abandoned Edward and changed Alexander to Alistair, specifically because he heard that the most pleasing format for a name was the, the rhythm pattern that Alistair Crowley gives you. Hmm. That, like... First syllable stress, three syllables, and then first syllable stress, two syllables. Okay, cool. Kind of. <laughs> See, here's, here's the thing about young Aleister Crowley. His father died at 11, left him a third of his fortune at that point. So he mm. got very rich, very young. Wow. Lost his father, who he absolutely adored, mm. and turned kind of, he turned kind of shitty. Mm-hmm. In that sort of way that some people do when they suffer a, a trauma at a very young age and are given a lot of resources. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I don't know how much uh, to ascribe 
um, personality traits to a, a specific trauma in someone's life. But it, I mean, it, it also depends on like what kind of supports he had around him at that time. And yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the answer to that is not a lot. His mother mm. actually wasn't that fond of him and he was away at boarding school where you can kind of be extra terrible to For everyone sure. around you in a certain yeah. way, especially when you have a lot of money. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he ended up dropping out of school. He ended up spending a lot of money on drugs and prostitutes. He, <laughs> like, like I, I don't just mean that he turned into a bit of a brat. Like, he, yeah. he partied pretty hard. He said some pretty terrible things to family members. He, he spiraled. <laughs> he spiraled pretty hard. He actually contracted syphilis before the age of 20 um like he, he just yeah th- things went pretty rough still managed to get into uh, cambridge somehow which is a <laughs> thing i guess you can do in the late 19th Buy century yourself if you have into at that point maybe <laughs> honestly um but you know when he was when he was at school really started experimenting even further with debauchery i suppose you could say mm-hmm. when <laughs> when he was 23 he had from what I could tell, a, a relatively minor illness, like a fairly brief one, that from all accounts made him just absolutely obsessed with the idea of mortality. Hmm. Um, something about it really shook him. Yeah. And he started looking for occult texts. He was already at this point in his life avowedly not Christian. He had spent a lot of that kind of terrible teenage time doing things like questioning religious teachers with very very awkward and difficult questions about christianity which Mm -hmm. um you know their refusal or inability to answer just kind of further pushed them away from any sort of traditional uh religious belief Mm -hmm. um and he decided that maybe the answer wasn't atheism maybe it was this third way he also wrote his first um volume of poetry around here it was erotic poetry um (laughs) Probably won't put this in, but the the volume was called. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's like way too on the nose. That's not. I haven't read any poetic. Of it, that's not like. But I don't. I don't get the impression it's any good. <laughs> Listen, I'm li- I'm literally judging this book by the cover, but <laughs> I I, you know what? That tells me everything I need to yeah. know right there. Yeah. He was also very interested in mountain climbing. Hmm. So poetry, mountain climbing, and uh, yeah, the occult. Cool. Uh, And prostitutes, I suppose. All right. He also had his first same-sex romantic encounter around this time. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the rest of his life would um, identify as bisexual and in fact sort of uh, advocate for bisexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, He thought that everyone was like way too uptight about their sexuality and they should just be honest about it with themselves and not necessarily force themselves to, uh, uh, you know, experiment outside of their comfort zone, but maybe to ask themselves whether or not their comfort zone was too narrow. Right. Which again, we're talking about the late 19th century. This is, yeah, that's bold for that time. Yeah. It it was, it was beyond uh, counterculture. It was, it was, uh, literally criminal and very, very dangerous. Yeah. Um, but again, very, very wealthy. Yeah. Helps a lot of these problems go away. This the same year, he um, he joined a, a, an order called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And these guys aren't going to stick around very long, but they're really, really important. Um, mainly because other than Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, almost every other 
occult tradition that we would talk about have some sort of connection to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in some capacity. Right. They were founded in 1888 by three Freemasons. And a lot of the sort of uh, structure of it was based on the Freemason uh, initiation rites. But Mm -hmm. rather than the Freemason idea of like needing to believe in a higher power and the the rites uh, centered around the Temple of Solomon and, and all of that, they created a, a, a three-part order. When you were at the first level, they would teach you things like uh, how to uh, divine with tarot cards or astrology or geomancy. Geomancy is, is um, kind of a catch-all term for things like uh, uh, reading runes or the I Ching, things like that. Okay. Then when you worked your way up to the second sphere, they would teach you uh, astral projection. They would teach you scrying. They would teach mm-hmm. you... Uh, uh, alchemy, things like that. And they said that at the kind of highest, at the highest end of the second order, you would be learning things like telepathy, psychic abilities, things like that. And the leaders of the, of the second uh, sphere were able to telepathically contact the third sphere, uh, which was made up exclusively of beings that they refer to as the secret chiefs. And According to the traditions of the order, um, the secret chiefs were, depending on when in the in the progress of the order and who you were talking to, mm-hmm. were either um, extremely skilled uh, occultists or were spirits from another realm or uh, were shamans of various traditions around the world or sometimes were something even more supernatural or even extraterrestrial in nature and that they were getting these instructions from the uh the third sphere on on how to run the order and and, uh what to teach and and you know gaining new knowledge from them things like that and what the hermetic order does is it kind of brings basically everything that we've talked about in terms of western esotericism under a single umbrella one Mm. more time so it's it incorporates a lot of the theosophical societies uh understandings of the universe um but it it really focuses um quite a bit on the ritual of it all Mm -hmm. blavatsky's outlook on occultism was very much like a philosophical one it was about understanding yourself as much as it was anything else Uh, Mm -hmm. i mean there's there's certainly her own uh purported mental powers and things like that but the society in general was uh, about sort of it, it's very close to what today is more formalized as like unitarian universalism like yeah. this sort of you can get it reminded me a lot of that actually when yeah. you were describing it yeah being able to gain truth from any tradition things like that yeah um the hermetic order being sort of descended from masonry is very very focused on ritual and and uh, uh repetition and sort of if you do this thing in this order and so like at high this magic time, yeah, you'll, you'll gain this outcome. Mm-hmm. And it's all based around these very, very strict, you know, you, you need to, you know, have, uh, I'm, I'm making this up, but, you know, you know, hold, hold meetings on full moons or the, you know, candles must be such and such a color or, you know, very mm-hmm. particular things. And Crowley, as a, as a fairly young man, joined this order looking for something like very, it, it seemed like the most... I guess the most occult thing he could find, hoping that that would be like, if he could go as extreme as possible, that he would really find the answer that, that he was looking for. In reality, sort of the mundanity of everyday life caught mm-hmm. up with the order. 
there was a massive disagreement between one of the uh, one of the founders of the club and a group, sort of a splinter group led by Crowley, who felt like the order wasn't going far enough in their studies. Right. And Crowley's group tried to like take over this one lodge and basically say like you have no authority here, we're taking control, and the whole thing ended up in court. And the decision ended up coming down to who had signed the lease on the building. And like, it, it just really, yeah, it, it feels so silly at the end of the day. Like it starts off as this, like, that's like so far away from like anything religious or spiritual. Yeah. 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 It feels like this epic battle between like these two, like forces of, of, of just, just esoteric power. Yeah. And it ends up being like a lease dispute. <sighs> and, you know, the whole thing just kind of went bad from there. There were a lot of members of, uh, of the order who just really didn't like Crowley. Mm-hmm. They thought he was just really weird and like needed to tone it down like a lot. Yeah. And then there were a lot of people who were like, maybe he's right. Mm-hmm. And it's not as though Crowley tore apart the order on his own. There were a lot of other problems. One of the uh, founders had actually needed to leave the order on the basis that uh, he had left a bunch of their sacred texts in a cab. <laughs> in a briefcase bob how could you and it, and it got out to the public and and so he resigned in shame basically like yeah the hermetic order of the golden dawn operates in this weird in between where on, on one hand you can't talk about anything else in this entire spiritual movement without mentioning them mm-hmm. on the other hand it kind of reminds me of that society of magicians from arrested development yeah we demand to be taken seriously those guys yeah uh they just they they ended up they end up running into reality so often that they 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 end up coming up silly. Yeah. After the the order falls apart, like two years later, like in 1900, it's basically defunct. Crowley decides, you know what, like I'm I'm beyond them anyways, basically. Yeah. And does a Blavatsky style travels the world, hits a whole bunch of different cultural centers, trying to learn about their traditions. Again, does Japan and India and Egypt and Greece. Uh, spend some time in Mexico. In 1904, he claims that he is contacted by a spirit uh, called Iwas, who he claims is the messenger of Horus. This is while while he's staying in Egypt with his uh, wife at the time. They're staying there and claiming that they're a prince princess, and they're in this fancy hotel, and they're you know visiting the pyramids and all of this stuff. And, yeah. and again, just really leaning on that wealth. He claims he's visited by the spirit, and he writes what he calls the book of the law. And he claims that he's written it with the uh, inspiration or the guidance of Iwas. And this book is actually the source of a saying that ends up kind of propagating over just about every occult tradition eventually, which is do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Mm-hmm. And this gets expre- expressed in various ways over various traditions. Yeah. There's the, like the Wiccan read, right? Um, yeah, and it harm none, do as you will. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the one. But this is where it originates, is in this book in 1904. Mm-hmm. And he, he decides that he wants to build an entire movement on this book that he's just written. And he calls it Thelema, which is Greek for will. Mm-hmm. And basically the entire basis of it, I mean, I'm, I'm being very reductionist about it, but the whole basis of it is that you should do whatever you want, but not like in a, in a sort of like impulsive way, in mm-hmm. a you need to reflect on yourself and, and determine what you really want, what you really need. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is this sort of sacred force of will within you, and that if you follow that, then you'll live the most fulfilling life that you can. And not only that, but that there is not as much separation between individuals as it sort of seems on the outside, 
and that if everyone acts according to their will, then people's will won't contradict each other. Mm -hmm. So if you follow your own will, then morally speaking, you can't prevent someone else from following their will. Because there's like a, a, a bigger, more holistic will that's at work through everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if everyone is working in accordance with that, then there's going to be no conflict. Yeah. But yeah, he wants to start this whole movement called Thelema based on this this book and starts sort of looking for opportunities to do so. He, you know, incorporates... Like, there's there's a lot of Eastern traditions that kind of are, are at work here. Mm-hmm. He, he incorporates yoga, uh, Kabbalah, uh, other Western occultists. Um, there's a lot of the... Um, sort of higher echelon knowledge of the the hermetic order of the golden dawn is at work in here mm-hmm. um but yeah he's he's ready to go on this sort of new religion basically he keeps trying to contact iwas again to get more knowledge and a lot of this like attempt to contact him is through again like very ritualistic behavior mm-hmm. so a lot of the times it's uh basically practicing sex magic so he's trying to basically focus that energy into spells that will, you know, it will uh, manifest Iwas or he'll be going to specific locations that he's hoping are more receptive to spiritual energies or he'll, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all very, it, it's, it's a cult in sort of the way that like the satanic panic thinks of occultism, yeah. right? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of drawing pent- uh, pentagrams on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the floor and, and, you know, lining it with black candles and, you know, all, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. There's a lot of that going on. And he's continuing to write books and terrible poetry and <laughs> all of this during this entire uh, period. But he's very public about all of this a lot of these orders have been like very private about it and he's just like right out there like super transparent about it very transparent not only about his rejection of christianity and his Mm -hmm. attempts to practice magic which you know he sees as sort of this invocation of uh his will in the thelemic uh, Mm -hmm. tradition um but also his uh his homosexuality and his mm-hmm. uh, and and his bisexuality and his uh uh you know his he, he's he's an advocate for masturbation and he's like the, like a lot of stuff that people in 1904 are going to be very 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 uptight about yeah a lot of people like today super are uncomfortable very, very, very topics yeah. yeah 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 that hasn't it's, it's gotten better it's not gone away that's for sure yeah um and and people are just shocked by this man because why is he saying this publicly like mm-hmm. not only why isn't he you know why is he doing this privately but like why is he admitting to it mm-hmm. it's not something you admit to he uh decides to uh found basically a clone of the golden dawn in 1907 hoping to use this to uh, uh spread thelema mm-hmm. but in 1910 is sued by one of the founders of golden dawn for publishing the secrets of the secret order of the golden <laughs> dawn but crowley wins because basically the court can't find any sort of like contract that would say that he's not allowed to reveal these secrets other than sort of the very like occult, like yeah spiritual contracts that are entered into in initiation rites, which the court can't really uphold. Yeah. So once again, Golden Dawn is just like <laughs> ramming its head against the legal system in this really odd and frustrating way, but kind of amusing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's so strange. It's so very strange. 1912, he publishes a book known as uh, The Book of Lies. Um, this is probably, I I would be willing to say that this is his most, uh, most famous. well-known yeah, uh, work. 
And it's this book full of kind of obscure or, or really difficult to interpret uh, mm-hmm. poetry or, or prose. Generally, there's like one chapter per page kind of thing. And it's on all sorts of different topics. Some of them are like very specific instructions on how to perform very specific magical rituals. Mm -hmm. And some of them are sort of vague predictions. And some of them are just him talking about how much he appreciates, you know, certain aspects of the occult, things like that. But like, it's, he's claiming that he's written it with um, sort of spiritual inspiration. And again, he wants to sort of use this in this, religion that he's trying to start up Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting i've I've, I've read pieces of it and i can really understand why people are drawn to it it has that sort of element of being just vague enough that you can sort of put whatever meaning you want onto Mm -hmm. each passage um which is very attractive but like yeah there's there's other there's other points in it where it almost feels like he's playing with the reader right even even on whether or not crowley believes that the things in the book of lies are true which uh i would like to direct your attention to the title of the book um (laughs) in the same year that he publishes the book of lies 1912 he joins another secret society (laughs) the order templi orientis uh oto for short it's a german organization order of the eastern temple right it's it's all the same sort of lingo right like there's this element of uh the names kind of start to sound similar well yeah there's this exoticism that goes into it and this orientalism that trying goes to into sound it. like really mysterious yeah 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 foreign and he's made the head of the british chapter really quickly like he really impresses the leadership and basically he takes this organization which originally was a combination of like swedenborgian doctrine we talked about swedenborg in the in the first half the whole talking to angels thing yeah um a combination of that and masonry again mm-hmm. um and he basically takes it and injects thelema into the entire organization like rewrites all their rituals from the ground up to include his own works Hmm. the oto does pretty well in fact the oto is still around that's a thing that you can join to this day Hmm. but yeah shortly after that the war breaks out Mm -hmm. um crowley publicly supports the germans in it as a british man so that's cool he's basically poor by the, the outbreak of war his money finally runs out and you know we can go year by year for the rest of his life but Basically, the rest is like a haze of writing spiritual books and doing drugs and lots of sex magic and poverty and sickness and basically living hand to mouth off of donations from the various uh, occult organizations that he belongs to and the mm-hmm. various followers who seek him out because he's got this reputation as as really this very counterculture figure, right? Like yeah. that's, that's his draw is yeah, that he's sure. rejecting culture outright. I mean, he also supports the Nazis in World War II. He supports the, uh, the Russian communists. And it's important to say that like in general, he would probably be considered a fairly conservative person politically. What he likes about, you know, the Nazis and the communists is this rejection of, of Christianity, which he sees in their sort of rejection of a, a, a broader order of things mm. in Europe. He doesn't want that established cultural order. He wants this occult uh, way of doing things. And he sees this world of, uh, you know, based on occult principles as being a much better world. It's not though as though he, you know, really appreciates the tenets of fascism. It's that, yeah. you know, he, he's he's rooting for anyone tearing down the the established order of things. Right. Um, and, you know, his, his views are really complicated at the end of the day. I mean, 
for the time he's probably you know he's one of the most pro-gay rights per, uh, people that ever lived mm-hmm. um for, for that era but also he was incredibly anti-democratic like he had that very like aristocratic view of like there needs to be masters and slaves is a thing he literally put in his book and he saw this um occult or esoteric tradition of masters and disciples as being incredibly important mm. you know he uh often supported really radical political causes you know, from this metaphysical standpoint, as we talked about, but he was also, you know, um, strongly anti-Christian, anti-abortion. Um, he uh, had this very complicated uh, relationship with race in that he claimed to um, prefer uh, non-white partners. But, you know, that's that's one of those things where for somebody growing up in the early 20th century, they're seeing that as being enlightened, but not necessarily understanding how fetishization is yeah yeah, problematic its own form of racism really yeah um he eventually died in 1947 his funeral mass was held in a catholic church but using occult rites which was this final public outrage caused by his life which he would have (laughs) probably very much enjoyed Mm -hmm. crowley really represented the sort of almost adolescent ragings against the established order that sort of characterizes the height of occultism Mm -hmm. he wasn't his main goal seemed to be this furthering of his own metaphysical power um and he seemed to enjoy railing against society's norms as much as he did actual spiritual enlightenment and for him and for him i think they were really one and the same but yeah you know looking back on his his time as a spiritual leader and of course there's there's plenty of people who follow him and who uh work alongside him and and have, have similar ideas that he's really just being a stand-in for in this topic, right? Mm-hmm. That are doing similar things. But yeah, it, it really is this um, this reactionary movement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he stands so firmly in, in sort of the collective consciousness of, of Western society because he's this outrageous figure. Yeah. Um, because he uh, was open about his sexuality, about his rejection of Christianity, about... Uh, he, he would often say things just to outrage the the press mm-hmm. just because it amused him yeah um you know uh denied to the end of his days that he was satanist because you know that that was too far he wasn't you know <laughs> let's let's get it right he's he's an occultist absolutely but not a satanist like get get it right please <laughs> but like a really interesting man nonetheless yeah and while he was alive um that was the version of the occult that was most prominent it was this uh reaction it was this ritual based occultism it was this uh uh, order based occultism and really where this ends up falling apart is uh the nazis we can blame them for that uh or thank or i'm not sure um and and not necessarily as directly as people might think i i think a lot of people are waiting for the nazis to show up at this point but there was this uh german society called the the tool society a lot of the same beliefs as as Crowley, but came out uh, came up after World War One, and were basically founded on occult ideas of the time, but modified to be about uh, the superiority of the Aryan race. They believed that this was this kind of similar to Druidism. It's this nationalist callback to a time before. Mm-hmm. You know, the Germanic uh, pagan tradition is very very different from Christianity, but is also one of the most recent to. Uh, be taken over by christianity in europe right right so they have a fairly clear picture of what 
Germanic paganism looked like and were kind of hearkening back to this time where it was prevalent as being like one of the better times in like German history. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, they add this like very, it's, it's this myth very similar to Atlantis. We don't have to get super deep into this, but like this, this Atlantean super race that lived before all of this happened that believed in Germanic paganism that, um, you know, would eventually, you know, mix with, you know, lower class people i'm putting up the all the square quotes here um but all of this is based in uh uh, occult rights and these ideas about what germanic paganism were like and there are a lot of people who belong to the tool society um i mean two two members of the tool society actually founded the german workers party which is actually the first party that uh hitler gained leadership of in his uh takeover of the the german republic or the weimar republic Mm -hmm. um Hitler himself doesn't seem to have been terribly involved in the occult, but there were a lot of members of the the German Workers' Party and later the Nazi Party who had been part of the Tool Society and did uh, bring some of this doctrine into um, some of the doctrine that went into the Nazi Party. Mm-hmm. So there were shades of it there, yes. People get a little overexcited about the... the there was this expedition to um, Tibet, basically, purportedly to dig up Aryan remains hmm. um it's it's just it was an archaeological expedition it, it yeah it, you know hitler tends to blow everything out of proportion when it <laughs> comes to uh anything spiritual or mythological he is uh, a larger than life figure oh and, hitler oh hitler so we, we can really leave it there but i mean the thing that that does is it makes it very unfashionable to practice occultism yeah no kidding there's one more person that we should really talk about today though named uh gerald gardner mm-hmm he actually came to the occult relatively late in life. I mean, he was born in 1884, so he was only 10 years younger than than Crowley. Mm-hmm. Um, but he kind of dabbled in it between the two world wars. And around 1939, he, uh, he got involved with an occult group that he really wanted to get into their beliefs, their ideas, their rituals, all of that. But he found them kind of silly in a way. Like, mm-hmm. And, and he, he just it wasn't a good fit for him. To be fair, they seem like a particularly um, out there occult group. They claimed that the lantern that was hanging from the the, the ceiling in there um, in, in the shed that they met in uh, was a transfigured Holy Grail, hmm. um, and the leader of it tended to make a lot of uh, proclamations about past lives that they had had and right. uh, predictions about the future. And everything kind of broke for Gardner when this particular group's leader. Germany invaded Poland on September 1st. On September 2nd, this leader uh, made a prediction that Britain would never enter the war. And then on September 3rd, Britain entered the war and Gardner went, you know what? Like, I, <laughs> I just, I can't do this. Yeah. And he left. And he found this, uh, this other group and he, he, it, they seemed a lot different than the other occult groups that he had, he had dealt with in that they just seemed happier mm-hmm. was his main was his main uh, uh, comment on them. They didn't seem so self-serious. They didn't seem so concerned about control and power. They didn't seem so angry. Mm-hmm. And he just liked their vibe. Yeah, fair enough. And he decided like, hey, I'm going to give these guys another shot. We'll, we'll try it one more time. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And he noticed during the, um, the uh, uh, initiation ceremony that at one point... Because these initiation ceremonies always use like lots of Latin and lots of like 
all sorts of language pulled from all over the place to sound mm-hmm. very spiritual and very mysterious. He noticed that they used the word Wicca, which is uh, an old English word for witch. Mm-hmm. And he knew from his studies that there was a there was a book written in 1921 by a woman named Margaret Murray, where she wrote what what she called the witch cult hypothesis, which was this idea that the witch trials in Europe had actually uncovered a real um, existing occult belief system that had existed all of these years below, uh, you know, kind of below the radar of Christianity. It had survived this sort of homogenization of spirituality in Europe. And she suggested that this was a more maternalistic or at least more gender balanced uh, uh, cult that involved both a male and female deity, that it was a fertility cult, that it involved uh, practicing practical magic, that there were covens, sabbats, uh, child sacrifice, um, all of these very like traditionally um, stereotypical uh, witch activities. Mm-hmm. And like we know now looking back on this, uh, this uh, academic work that it's not I was going to say it's not terribly good, but maybe that's like too kind to Murray's work, to be honest. Like it was, she, she took some very, very slim and incredibly biased evidence and turned it into massive generalizations and then sort of filled in whatever gaps were still left with her, with her own imagination. Yeah, it's not exactly scholarly. It, it wasn't terribly well done, but it was, it was accepted enough that, I mean, a few years later, she was asked to write the entry on witchcraft for the Encyclopedia Britannica. So like, it was it was prevalent, even mm-hmm. if it was flawed. And Gardner was well familiar with her work. And, and he, you know, in noting the differences in this practice of a cult and, and knowing about the witch cult hypothesis, uh, came to the conclusion that this was actually a manifestation that he had actually found mm-hmm. this witch cult that had been existing in Europe for thousands of years. In practice, that group had probably been founded eh, 10 to 15 years before mm-hmm. um that's that's what we fi- figured out since but he was convinced that it was that ancient he took it from there and started embracing this idea of joyfulness he started rejecting the more self-serious uh aspects of occultism he actually met crowley he uh, corresponded with him for a while but actually met him at one point mm-hmm. um crowley inducted him into the oto but he wasn't really that interested in the oto anyways and Gardner found him kind of a little bit much. Yeah. It just wasn't his speed. And so he started working on what he was calling Wicca after that old English word. And what he believed he was codifying, what he believed he was writing down was this um, sort of record of this very, very old religion. When mm-hmm. in fact, it's really a lot of occult uh, uh, ideas that have come out of the mid 19th century and have been refined in such a way that you know it it rejects i mean certainly doesn't reject all of the the ritualism that's that's very very present but kind of changes the the philosophy behind it a little bit or the the reasons why it's practiced a little bit and so he's he he continued to push out all of that you know power hungry stuff in the 1940s, he learned about the Druidism movement, liked a lot of what he saw there, started incorporating it in where it hadn't mm. really been that present in occultism before that. It had sort of existed beside it, but that naturalistic stuff didn't really fit in with the very dark, uh, harnessing the energy of spirits type mm-hmm. uh, activity that Crowley was looking for. It did, just didn't jive with him. It yeah. worked for Gardner. In fact, he saw the... He, he believed that incorporating Druidism in beside... Um, Wicca was just uh, an instance of taking two very old traditions and 
uh, that probably had a lot of interplay anyways and sort of reuniting them. Right. In 1951, the Witchcraft Act of 1735 of Britain was repealed. (laughs) Those things tend to hang around for a while. And uh, when it was repealed, he decided to go public with his beliefs uh, and began referring to himself as a witch in public. He opened a witchcraft museum, in fact, in in Britain. uh, Well, in, in the Isle of Man. And slowly started gaining followers. Um, One of the most uh, prevalent being uh, a woman named Doreen Valiente, who became a really close associate of his. And the two of them worked together to basically cut everything that was Aleister Crowley out of occultism and uh, really make Wicca into its own own sort of separate thing, Um, really setting up the, um, the modern pagan movement. And... Wicca is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The traditional uh, uh, gardener one still has some of the vestiges of uh, occultism. There's a lot of ritual involved. There's uh, uh, it, it needs to be practiced in uh, in groups in covens. Um, you need to be initiated into the coven by an existing member. Yeah. Um, so there is that sort of passing down that transmission right uh, mm-hmm. from from uh, masters to disciples. So like a lot of that stuff is hanging around, but. Wicca over the, you know, the 60s, the 70s, after Gardner dies in 1964, starts changing a lot. Uh, Raymond Buckland, who Gardner uh, corresponded with, uh, exports the movement to the United States where it changes again. And various groups kind of latch on to uh, Wicca and and sort of disperse it for their own needs. There's um, uh, schools of Wicca that uh, focus a lot more on on the idea of a female deity and sort of leave out a male mm-hmm. deity. There's aspects that focus on uh, both in balance. There's some that kind of look at a at a broader paganism with with um, much more than just two gods. There's some that don't look at any specific gods at all in sort of a more um, pan spiritual uh, uh, way. There are uh, eclectic pagans who study alone. There's you know like there's there's a lot of different approaches to um, to Wicca that come out of the well, really, really the um, the social changes in the 1960s where mm-hmm. um, it, it goes mainstream in certain ways, uh, like even the whole Age of Aquarius thing, right? Yeah. This idea of, of the rejection of, of order and, and the uh, the embrace of, of personal empowerment uh, as an idea of the, the um, social movements of the 1960s. A lot of that comes from the occult and specifically from uh, uh, Wiccan beliefs, but yeah, I don't. I don't want to go a lot further down that road, just because it's it becomes so dispersed that it becomes impossible to hang on to all of it. Mm-hmm. But really, after after World War II, the whole occult movement um, it loses its edge, and I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, in all sorts of movements, there's there's three phases. Um, there's the thesis, which is the existing order. There's the antithesis, which is the reaction against the existing order, and then mm-hmm. there's the um, um, synthesis, which is the com- the combination of the two, which becomes the new thesis, the new order. And, mm-hmm. you know, Crowley's brand of occultism, uh, even Blavatsky's order uh, uh, version of occultism, was very much the antithesis. It kind of seems like what Gardner ends up creating, and, and creating with lots of help, creating with uh, the help of Blavatsky, creating with the, the help of many, many other people around him, and even creating with the help of, of Crowley. Crowley, yeah ends up being this new version of that third way, which I, I don't know if necessarily deserves the 
the label of uh, occultism as anymore esotericism maybe but it, it yeah a lot of the stuff that people are spooked about a lot of the stuff that people are rattled about from from mainstream society it, it gets a lot kinder mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think as much as blavatsky gets the the credit for kicking it off and and uh and crowley gets the credit for creating every stereotype about the movement that ever existed <laughs> yeah uh, that photo of him in a turban is just amazing um <laughs> gardner kind of gets the credit for making it palatable again in certain mm-hmm. in certain respects it's kind of approachable yeah, yeah 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 i think so and it really opens up this this alternative spirituality in in western culture and like I said, if, if we get any further, we, we get into the New Age movement, which uh, which is, is very, very scattered, and we get too close to present day to really keep going. But Yeah, that's I, like a whole other topic. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's huge. Um, and e- even even with what we've covered today, there's so much that we had to kind of skate past, but mm-hmm. uh, in interest of time, because there's a lot of material here. But yeah, so this whole story goes from basically the, the French Revolution, this, this rejection of anything spiritual, through this really this really turbulent period where you have the majority of, of society who is um, either sticking with mainstream Christianity or a, a very small group who is, is flirting with, uh, you know, more and more often with the idea of atheism. Mm-hmm. And then you get this growing movement of people who are trying to figure out what else there could be in between. And it grows from looking to comparative religions through creating its own thing, this kind of very, very dark thing and, and playing with some, um, really dark ideas to really a, a movement that while in the mainstream still seems kind of uh, radical is is constantly growing. I mean, I, I think I saw a number somewhere for Wicca practitioners at uh, over 800,000 people worldwide. Hmm. Um, and, and that's and that's probably low because of the it's number. It's probably of... low. I was going to say like it would be hard to get accurate numbers on a practice like that, especially given, you know, it's it's still kind of considered to be you know not mainstream so and and not only that but the number of people who uh might not be practicing in uh like a coven or yeah they they, they might be practicing alone and and have literally no way to contact someone about yeah like a census about yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um so yeah that's that's likely low there are tens of thousands of people who belong to orders like the oto or to um the theosophic society Mm -hmm. um and you know even even on a societal level, just the the entire New Age movement has uh, embraced so much about not just Eastern religions, but also traditions that come out of this uh, this occult movement. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's really kind of carved out its own place in our society um, to the point where it's it's hard to separate the um, sort of performative elements of uh, occultism from the actual spiritual beliefs of occultism Mm -hmm. um and that's tricky down to the actual people that we've been talking about i mean blavatsky was accused of being a spy rather than actually a legitimate uh spiritual leader or maybe she was both uh crowley we didn't talk about it but also accused of being a spy Mm -hmm. on multiple occasions it's it's hard to say but again i I think at the end of the day it doesn't matter because of what they've uh inspired Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's occultism. <laughs> it's a it's a big it's a big subject. It's a huge topic. And yeah. It's tricky because it's not it, it, it weaves in and around so many other things and it's yeah. it, it touches it up against so many things that it's hard to say like this is this belongs in this topic and this does not. That's not 
something you can easily do. Yeah. And that's exactly something that I wanted to comment on as well is one of the reasons that I find this topic so fascinating is that you really can't just kind of put it in a box. Yeah. It touches everything from science to politics, to religion, to metaphysics, to Mm. just all, all kinds of topics. Yeah, definitely. And as you go through, you know, history, you can see how those things influence one another and how in turn that influences the progression and the ideas behind mm-hmm. occultism and different occult groups. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, c- certain, certain new age, certain new age ideas have become so prevalent in modern society that it's all, it, it's, mm-hmm. it, it can be difficult to look at that and go like, why, where did this, where did this come from all of yeah. a sudden? It kind of feels like it came up out of nowhere and that's not true in the least. It's been yeah. a nearly 200 year long process of, of acclimatizing our society to I think from a sociological perspective like it's just it's so fascinating to look (laughs) at how all of those different factors come together and kind of create this yeah you know situation yeah that allows for it to thrive it matters it like this is this is a major part of a lot of people's lives like it's it's it's, it you know it's easy to take a lot of these uh subjects and go okay well today we're going to be talking about you know x we're going to be talking about the napoleonic wars and here's when it started and here's when it ended and Mm -hmm. you know we'll talk about the things that go on in between and and those ones aren't i won't necessarily say they're easier topics but they're definitely neater topics Mm -hmm. you know they have a tidy beginning and ending yeah normally um these ones um it's like it's ongoing and evolving yeah but it's also it's, it's also not about just these main people at the top i know today we focused on individuals for the most part but mm-hmm. i almost got lucky on that one really like this is a this is a movement that involves so many people in such a personal way yeah that it's it's really it's really difficult to talk about for, for a number of reasons because people are really private about it because it's important to people because um you know um be, because it's difficult to figure out what to put in a topic about this and what is you know what needs to be rejected because mm-hmm. it's just a you know part of the belief set you know like how, how much do you incorporate the belief sets into the t- into the discussion of it yeah um it's it's messy but you know so is so is spirituality so yeah it, sure. it kind of it kind of makes sense yeah is there anything else that you were uh wondering about i know that was a bit of a whirlwind um, <laughs> it's a lot to take in <laughs> yeah no kidding learned a lot of things yeah yeah no i especially find helena blavatsky is mm-hmm. it yep. really really fascinating yeah like yeah. she sounds so cool. I enjoyed learning about her quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, if that's the case, we will leave occultism there for today. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The search for a personal alternative spirituality has been a character trait of the elite for thousands of years. Secret societies claiming a monopoly on forbidden knowledge that would give power to the initiated. The 20th century changed that. Esoteric spirituality lost its elitism through socialists like Eliphas Levy, uh, lost its secrecy through populists like Helena Blavatsky, lost its obscurity through sensationalists like Aleister Crowley, and ultimately lost its thirst for power through idealists like Gerald Gardner. The heritage of the occult has become democratic, ecological, accessible, and perhaps most importantly, very accepting. Next time on LHI 101, we'll be talking about Watergate. The first episode will be up on, well, early in January. I'm not sure about the exact date yet, as holidays have gotten busy already, and I, I even missed the mark a bit with this episode. Things have gotten so busy. 
the solstice is nearly here and the days will soon be getting longer again so whichever esoteric tradition you prefer i hope you enjoy your celebrations all the best for 2018 and i'll see you again in the new year since hi101's format can result in some factual errors i encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections i post for each show there that's hi101.ca if there are any errors i haven't addressed on there please let me know and i'll add them to the notes you can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.